Welcome to Grumpy Strategies, episode 12. I'm Michael Shoebridge, and I'm talking with SIA's Head of Research, Dr. Marcus Hellyer. Hello, Marcus. Hi, Michael. It's great to be here again in the SAA bunker deep beneath the Brindabella Ranges in our nuclear apocalypse-proof facility. Well, in SAA's global headquarters, we have spent most of this week navel-gazing. And boom, so, boom. Someone had to Rim say. shot. <laughs> so this, this week's episode won't surprise people that have been watching Australian Defence Matters by focusing on the enhanced lethality plan that the government announced on a large amphibious ship up in Sydney this week. Yeah, I think the biggest thing about it was actually the title of it. It was quite a mouthful. Yes, the Enhanced Lethality Surface Combat Fleet. Yeah. And I wrote a piece about it today and sort of referred to it as a plan, but... But it's not really a plan. It's a bit hard to know what to call it. It is this sort of mix of the the review that has been reinterpreted, expurgated, paraphrased by somebody in defence. It's the government's response to it. It's a hint at the implementation, but it is not actually the plan. We have to wait until later this year sometime when we actually get the next iteration of the Naval Shipbuilding Plan. So I'm calling it a plan, but it's more of a concept. Well, to me, it's really a... Mitsubishi Outlander. Uh, it's a it's a hybrid because there was an independent review done and then there was a government response advised by defence done and these two things loved each other very, very much and the result was the progeny that popped out into the public, which is this document that apparently contains the independent review's work and recommendations and the government's interpretation and response. So it's really the child of the independent review and defence's advice. Mm. A hybrid vehicle. Yes, but it, it it is very high level, I would say, and it's certainly not the implementation plan. So for annoying people like you and me, it sort of raises as many questions as as it answers. But perhaps you might want to refresh our listeners' memories about what the original independent review was meant to be doing. Well, I suppose the the review was actually, I just said it was the child of the defence advice and the independent review, but it, it was actually the offspring of the defence strategic review. So it's it, mother and father are Angus Houston and Stephen Smith. And that is what said, look, we've had a look at the whole of defence and the force structure and the strategic environment. The Navy needs enhanced lethality in its surface combat fleet. So they got retired Admiral Hillarides and a, a, US, Admiral. a US Admiral and a retired Australian Navy person and a retired person out of the finance department to do this independent well, assessment. Well, a, a retired secretary of the finance department, not just any old person yes, out of finance. very senior person out of the finance department. And the result when the government and defence got hold of it is what was put out in public this week. Mm. Yeah, so, so, so they were told to go away and look at the Navy surface combatant fleet. Surprise, surprise, uh, the answer is you need more Navy surface combatants. So I don't think we should be terribly surprised surprised about what they have come back with, which um, is actually looks a lot, a lot like more of the same. So maybe we should talk a little bit about what is in there, yeah, so and then we can talk about what's not in there. And I'm going to call it the plan, just for sure. Let's call it a plan. So... Marcus, what's in the plan? Well, I think the the big new announcement in the plan is that we will be acquiring, on a pretty racy timeline, 11 new surface combatants. And they are referred to in here as general purpose frigates. So they have eschewed the, the term corvette. So they are deliberately using the term 
frigate, but isn't that because frigates are bigger? Frigates are bigger, yeah. but the the plan says here's the four designs we're we're going to look at, and you look at them, and yes, they are on the small side of the frigate scale. So certainly we're not going down the ten thousand ton hunter class. These seem to be in the three to four thousand kind of mm. range, which is actually not that different to the current Anzac about that size. And in fact, one of the designs is the same family, the Miko, as the current Anzac. It's it's just a development of that. Design. Yes, and, and one does wonder how did they land on those four designs because there certainly hasn't been any public engagement with industry, no request for information. So you're sort of wondering why those four. One hopes Admiral Hillarides didn't spend one morning browsing through Wikipedia trying to come up with uh, a short list, but... I think he would have had Jane's. Okay, well, he probably did have a big enough budget mm. there. So so it's a little hard to know why those four. But anyway, so the, the, the idea is to get a of those general purpose frigates and interestingly the the acquisition strategy seems to be we'll get the first three built overseas to get them quickly and the remaining eight will be built at Henderson in Western Australia. So uh, this hybrid build strategy and uh, Deputy Prime Minister slash Defence Minister Richard Miles has said that we are aiming to get the first one by the end of this decade. So maybe that is around 2029-2030 which is a pretty racy timeline by traditional defence uh, Well, see, I would say by traditional defence standards, and we'll probably talk a bit about this at the end, but the implementation approach for procurement looks very standard Australian defence organisation, very stately. So, yes, if it's going to be that stately standard approach to acquisition, a shortlisting, getting tenders, negotiating, oh, sorry, evaluating, negotiating, eventually contracting, you'd be lucky to have a contract by 2028. Well, yeah, so it is It is a racy timeline. It'll be interesting to see how the government and defence do accelerate it. Now, so, you, haven't, so- you haven't mentioned the amazing step in autonomy that, that has come with this plan, which is to have six large optionally crewed vessels. And we don't know too much about them, but... There is a large optionally crewed vessel uh, that's sailing around the world at the moment. It's made by an American company, Lidos, which was spun out of Lockheed Martin, mainly a digital company. It's the Sea Hunter. I think it's between two and 300 feet long. And the, the idea is, I think, that these things, these six vessels, will be missile trucks. That seems to be the concept. So the, the plan says that they will have 32 vertical launch cells. So maybe the idea is, well, the, the general purpose frigates are only going to have 16 missile cells, which is a very small amount in by modern standards. So Twice as many as the so, Anzacs, but half as many as the Hunter. And one-sixth the number on a United States destroyer, for example. Ooh. So not a lot. So the idea seems to be that these large optionally crewed surface vessels will be a kind of loyal wingman, perhaps. Uh, but there's only six of them, and the timeline, in contrast to the frigates, doesn't seem very racy. So they seem to be arriving sometime in the 2030s. It's said that we're going to be a quote, fast follower of the US Navy, which is also sort of pursuing these kinds of concepts. And when we get to what's not in there, what I would say is this is the only reference to autonomous systems essentially in here. These six optionally crewed vessels, which Mr. Miles has said we will actually crew, so they're not going to be terribly autonomous, uh, sometime down the track in the 2030s. And they will also be built 
at Henderson. This thing about terminology, large optionally crewed vessels, reminds me of the language wars inside the defence organisation about unmanned aerial vehicles or uncrewed aerial vehicles. The the Air Force insisted that was the wrong term. They should be called RPAS instead, uh, which was remotely piloted aerial systems because they had to have a human pilot if it was any kind of aircraft. And the Air Force could not imagine a world that actually had uncrewed aerial systems, which of course exist now. In fact, it was an uncrewed aerial system that spotted those uh, arrivals onto Australia's coast just last week, uh, purchased, I think, from JB Hi-Fi by an Aboriginal uh, community <laughs> in, in our north. So, But, right. but these so, optionally crewed vessels, to me, it's the same. Uh, look, I have to admit autonomy is a thing, but I still want a crew on my ship. Yes. Well, just as we uh, have previously said, the Triton large UAV where we're getting four for the price of $3 billion is probably not the best way to do autonomy and is certainly not the smallest smart the many. I think these large optionally crewed surface vessels, you know, are they the best way to do autonomy? All I'll say is they are one way to do autonomy and all of the other ways are not covered in this yeah, report. Anyway, it's a start. So it is a start. It is a start. So the other big thing that's in there is that the infamous Hunter-class frigate program is being cut to... Six vessels from the original nine. Now, I'd argue that that's not actually all that big of development. First of all, we still seem to be getting those six on the original schedule. So we're not going to free up any money or resources anytime soon because those last three vessels probably weren't going to be delivered until the 2040s anyway. So it doesn't save us any money in the short term. And by my own calculation, we'll still be spending probably at least $20 billion before we get the first of those ships. And why would you need to sign a contract for the last three ships at this point anyway? So I'm not sure BAE has lost anything. I don't think they have because another part of the the plan is it says we're going to uh, immediately roll from building those six hunters into replacing our three air warfare destroyers and that's going to be done in Adelaide. Well, guess what? BAE recently unveiled the design for an air warfare destroyer version of the hunter with 96 missile cells. So, you know, the cynic in me says we'll simply roll from the first six hunters into three hunter-based air warfare destroyers. Yes, uh, I think you're being a little um, light to describe them unveiling the design for a 96 cell. I, well, I saw I know, it. There, was it a, there it was. There was a plastic model. Uh, yeah, what are you saying, Michael? The people were It was showing. in a nice plastic case. And I, I think the know, design they, related they to nice. sort of airfix modelling a cutting of well, plastic. What, what more so, do you need? But, but I think the point being that really that decision to say, oh, no, we're being extremely rigorous with BAE and cutting this plan from nine to six well, it looks to me like they're going to pay the same price for six that we're meant to get nine for. So that's a funny, courageous and strong negotiation that the defence has had with BAE. But then they're the incumbents. They're fat, dumb and happy for what happens after those six are built. Anyway, let's, yes. not, let's so, not go down the Hunter so frigate look, vortex. The, the good, the, on the good side of things is under the previous plan, I think we were at risk of being a, a navy with no ships as the Anzacs were ageing out and the Hunters weren't starting to be delivered until 2032, 33. So there was huge risk around that. By the way, at the same time, there is huge risk around the submarine transition. Yes. So if, you are, if you're a believer that we need a Navy and that 
that Navy needs to have some actual ships. I think this plan is encouraging because yes. if should it deliver, we will get more ships and we'll get them sooner. In a piece I put up on the SAA website called Doubling Down, I've got some analysis there of the ramp up in ship numbers, the ramp up in missile cells, and but also the ramp up in in crew that's going to be needed. So Ooh. I think on paper, the concept, if it's delivered, is good, but I think there are a lot of things missing from that plan, which we could probably yes. talk about. Well, you know, one thing that struck me uh, is there won't be enough things to strike other people with this plan because there are a lot of missile launch cells in this plan, in those optionally crewed trucks of the sea, uh, in the frigates themselves, but there's no flow of missiles guaranteed to the Royal Australian Navy yet because the guided weapons enterprise plan that the government is working on with defence so far has only popped out that Lockheed Martin are going to assemble a HIMARS missile, a land missile with a 70 kilometre range here. So these this plan is fitted for but not with the missiles that all of these ships will launch. Well, you know, I think the underlying premise of this plan is that what is important is getting missile cells to sea. And this plan ultimately will will get more missile cells to sea than the previous plan. But then that gets into that issue of, well, where are the missiles coming from? How are you going to have enough? And by the way, they're incredibly expensive. I was reading a story the other day that said already in the Red Sea, the US has expended 100 SM-2 air defence missiles. Well, they cost several million dollars uh, Australian. And based on the Defence Security Cooperation Agency's disclosures about how many missiles it sold to Australia... That's more than we actually have in total. So one of the things that I think is really missing from this is that it's the same old way of doing business, okay? You do business by getting ships to sea with lots of missiles on, so we're going to get more ships to sea and more missiles to sea, but I'm not sure how long that will continue to be a viable concept for. If the US is struggling to deal with the Houthis, how are we going to deal with a major power adversary? Yes, well, I was reading probably the same article you were reading about the US Admiral in charge of the Red Sea operation saying that this was the biggest naval battle that the American Navy had been in since World War II. And I thought to myself, so it's the biggest naval battle, but it's not against another navy. It's against a land-based enemy called the Houthis, who have uh, small drones that are on the surface and in the air, small boats, but are mainly firing and launching uh, missiles and drones from the land. So if it's the biggest naval battle, it does say maybe some of the things that the Houthis are using should be in this plan, and they're they're not in this plan. Well, it it gets back to that bigger issue of where are we in the kind of asymmetric thing? Are we still trying to be the conventional people who defeat everybody through, you know, we have more and better of everything? Are we the asymmetric adversary who's trying to be smarter and use asymmetric means? And we still seem to be on the conventional side of things, which doesn't seem to be working very well for the US against the Houthis, certainly didn't work well for them against the Taliban. And I'm not sure it's going to work that well for us against a large conventional adversary, hypothetically speaking, like the PLA. Well, you could say that the admirals and retired Navy personnel that came up with this plan have got a plan that would look familiar to the Russian Navy, but not to the Ukrainian military. And just like the Houthis, the Ukrainians aren't using 
surface ships with missiles to sink other navies' ships. They're using the small, the smart, and the many. Yep. So I cannot see a reason that none of the small, the smart, and the many are funded and in this plan because just on the timeline, let's assume the plan goes to schedule and new frigates start turning up in the 2030s. That's six years away. You could actually have some Houthi and Ukrainian-like capability that would be useful against a larger, more powerful enemy, just as they're demonstrating, well before 2030. Well, I, I agree. I mean, these, these technologies actually exist today, and you, you only have to read the newspaper to see that. This program, the new plan, if it delivers, only gets us additional capability and then traditional capability, best case by 29 or 2030. So, you know... Whether that was a function of the terms of reference, which said go out and look at surface combatants, or the fact that the people doing the review just couldn't imagine doing business differently, I'm not sure. I suppose my, my thought about this is this would have been a really racy, imaginative plan for the Royal Australian Navy if it had been published in 1994, not 2024. So it, I think it's really learnt from what Angus Campbell told Senate Estimates a couple of weeks ago, which is he was asked about what were the implications of the war in Ukraine for the Australian military and were they engaging with the Ukrainian military to learn and understand those lessons. He talked about how actually uh, we were engaging with everybody but the Ukrainians and the Russians, our Five Eyes partners. And he said it's very important not to learn the wrong lessons from the war in Ukraine. So I think like the Bourbons, the uh, French royal family, defence forgets nothing and learns nothing. Wow, historical reference there. I'm impressed, Michael. But yeah, so even even if we're not going to sort of be, you know, forward leaning and thinking about the small, the smart, the many, even if we look at kind of the, the standard things you would need to support a bigger fleet. So under this concept, we're going from the 11 current surface combatants or 10 if you accept that HMAS Anzac is essentially never going back into service because it's in such terrible condition, as the Chief of Navy said. We're going from 10 or 11 to 20, and that's the, the ships, 20 ships. So we currently have two tankers. I'm not sure if you need two tankers for 11 ships, you're probably going to need a lot more for 20 ships, particularly if most of them are relatively small frigates, but you're still trying to go very long distances with yes, them. Yes. So there are sort of all of those things, traditional enablers, are missing. There's nothing in there about facilities. So we're going from 11 surface combatants to 20. Well, where are they going? Mm. Where are they going to be based? What's the cost implications when, you know, military warfage costs millions per meter? Well, then it and, takes a long time to design, get the environmental approvals and build. And and then there's the, the elephant in the room of the people. So we know already before this plan came along, the Navy needed to grow from 15,000 to 20,000 people. So grow by a third, 5,000 people to crew all the th new things that were already coming, such as nuclear powered submarines. Well, this adds even more people to that. And I'm sort of estimating uh, in total, probably another 3,000. So maybe all up, it needs to grow by 8,000. Well, if we look at the last eight years, it's grown by 800. But it's, so, it's, it's a harder problem still than that, isn't it? Because let's, I think you've probably underdone the figures because I think some of the enabling people needed for things like large optionally crewed people will probably be bigger. I, people operate that, yep. the facilities, people to crew the tankers. But under the plan, the Navy shrinks 
before it grows because it's retiring the Anzacs more quickly than it's getting the replacement ships and the replacement frigates have smaller crews. So it actually shrinks and then has to climb an even bigger mm-hmm. mountain. Yeah, it, it's, it will probably go backwards in terms of the people it needs in its surface fleet in the short term. And then there's very, very rapid growth because it seems to be that those 11 general purpose frigates are going to be delivered on a kind of one-year drumbeat. Once you layer that on top, once the Hunter program actually does start to deliver, you're, you're actually getting more than one ship into service a year. So the growth is going to be very rapid. And that will, I think, in terms of the feasibility of this, it's going to be a lot for the Navy to swallow. Yeah, I was reminded you know talking about this would have been a great review if it had come out in 1994 it does remind me of that other term from the 90s which was fitted for but not with so this plan is fitted for but not with missiles it's fitted for but not with tankers and other supply ships and it's fitted for but not with expanded facilities and people and fitted for but not with extra crew and naval personnel and the issue about that for me gets us right into the money because to me that 11.1 billion dollars of new spending isn't even enough to build the frigates let alone the optionally crewed vessels and it certainly can't cover all these essential enablers Hmm. tankers missiles wars so i know that richard miles made a point about what a horrible black hole he was left with in just the navy's part of the budget in defense but this decision actually makes that hole bigger wider and deeper well yeah so i guess one of the good things about the plan is that there is some new money you know i think one of the things we need to uh, recognize is that until now over the ford estimates there was no new money in the defence budget for anything out of the Defence Strategic Review. The last federal budget did refer to this a sort of contingency reserve fund the defence might get in the second half of the decade for $30 billion. But when we remember that the cost difference that the government itself has revealed between the old attack class program and the nuclear-powered submarine program is over $30 billion this decade, all of that money is being absorbed by submarines. So essentially there was no new money at all for anything other than submarines. So at least with this plan, they've said $1.7 billion in the Ford estimates, so, so the next four, four years, years. Yep. and then over the, the financial decade, uh, about $11 billion. And you go, well, that's good, but when you start sort of unpacking that, you go, gosh, that won't actually get you very far because if we're going to hit this very racy schedule to deliver the... Uh, the general purpose the frigates. The general purpose frigates. Well, you've got to ramp start up the overseas production and you're also going to have to start up domestic production and you're going to have to start spending money on both uh, on both now if we remember we've already spent four billion dollars on the hunter class frigates and we haven't started construction yet so 1.7 billion is not a lot of money there and then when we look at the timeline by the end of the decade we might have gotten general purpose frigate four or five so so you got four or five and that's for 11.1 billion you know so there's going to be more money beyond that so that 11 billion is is not the full Bill. No, and if you want to start thinking about tankers, missiles, wharves, you're going to have to get some of that started early as well. This is what I mean about this hasn't relieved budget pressure on defence, it's created more mm, budget pressure. I, I agree, I agree. And so all of the challenges we've seen in terms of people 
infrastructure, uh, you know, munitions just sort of get worse and they're not addressed in what we've seen so far. And so that's why, you know, I think there's still a lot more to come here to uh, really understand this plan. Well, if I was the treasurer, I'd be starting to feel very anxious because what the government has now signed up to has a whole bunch of essential bills wrapped around it. And none of those are clear, but they're going to have to be paid. Well, and I, aside from the cost implications, just on capability implications, because this is all about capability, I'm still very anxious about capability. So we've discussed before, Navy is going down two very high-risk transition paths in its surface fleet and its subsurface fleet. And I think there's, there's serious risk that those transitions may not work. Now, we can talk about submarines again in a different time, but the risk in this transition is that the Anzacs will age out before their replacements arrive. Now, the old plan did have what was called the TransCap, so the Transition Capability Assurance Program. So that was essentially a life-of-type extension to keep the Anzac fleet going longer um, and keep them capable and keep them capable and seaworthy well this new plan kills off the transcap so essentially we're burning our bridges behind us and saying the anzacs as they are now essentially are going to have to get us through but we've already realized the the first one, HMAS Anzac, is in no is broken. fit state yeah. to keep going. So yeah. again, if, if you start opening up the other ones and realising their material state's pretty crappy, then... I think that's a budget-driven decision because that was a hugely expensive program, the Capability Assurance Program for the Anzac. So it's avoiding the cost of that, but unfortunately it's also meaning there's no insurance policy for delay. Yep. Well, and that has, there's an echo, isn't there, about submarines because the Navy has just advised the government and presumably retired Admiral Hillarides did too, that the feasibility and expense of keeping the Anzacs upgraded for longer wasn't worth the candle. And you think, but isn't that exactly what we're doing with the Collins-class submarines? So we've just had one high-risk transition plan ended because it doesn't look feasible in the light of experience. There's there's a ticking sound around that kind of problem with the submarines as well. I agree. Every time we hear anything at Senate Estimates about the Collins Life of Type Extension, it just raises more and more risks. Now, and that also raises an interesting point I think going back to the original terms of reference for this surface fleet review, it was it, they were directed to look at the surface fleet we needed in light of the acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines. So they're sort Ooh. of meant to work together. But nowhere in this plan that we saw this week does it actually say what's the division of responsibilities between these two fleets? What is it about SSNs that means we can, the service fleet can give up responsibility for certain effects? Or what is the relationship between the two that has changed the nature of the future service fleet? There's nothing in there. What we're saying is it still needs to get bigger. Well, I can hear somebody say, but oh, but but we've cut the hunters from nine to six, and that's because the AUKUS submarines are such good submarine hunters. But really, that that is a threadbare justification because that's just the back end so far away that if if you're really making a decision about force mix, you're making it for some time 
around 2050. So I think that's just threadbare. There is no interaction between this review and the undersea world. And for all of the talk about the essential need to have everything integrated with everything and combined operations, this is a review about frigates and missile-equipped frigates. So I think we'll end it there by saying at least the Navy now looks like it's going to have some ships, and that is a good thing. That is a good thing, but I think we are still in a facing massive strategic risk you know until this plan gets fleshed out and we can have confidence going to deliver i think we are still facing massive strategic risk in both the surface fleet and the subsurface fleet yes yep thanks marcus thank you michael